Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound No change, change without, without struggle. struggle No one no in one power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinur. Martin Griffith, the long-serving United Nations humanitarian official who started his career in genocide-ravaged Cambodia and served everywhere from Yemen to post-earthquake Syria, has called Gaza the worst-ever humanitarian crisis he's seen. A Financial Times analysis found that after only six weeks, northern Gaza has been reduced to rubble on a scale comparable only to the carpet bombing of German cities in World War II. Furthermore, roughly 70% of Palestinians killed so far have been women and children. This is a staggering proportion that sets Gaza apart from some of this century's worst wars. More than 20,000 are known to have died, more than 54,000 injured, most hospitals are unable to operate, one in four Gazans is starving, and all of Gaza is facing starvation. And the American mainstream media has virtually stopped whatever little coverage it provided during the first few weeks until today, about uh, a half an hour ago, a ceasefire resolution just passed in the UN Security Council. To discuss all of that and more, we have two distinguished Palestinians with us today. Mazen Kumsia, professor, founder, and director of Palestine Museum of Natural History, Palestine Institute of Biodiversity and Sustainability at Bethlehem University, and Ahmed Abufoul, the Hague representative for the Ramallah-based legal rights group Al-Haq. He is from Gaza and began his international legal career by doing an internship at the International Criminal Courts Office of the Public Council for Victims. Thank you, both of you, for uh, joining us today. And let's start with you, Ahmed Abufoul. Um, this resolution has just passed with two abstentions, the United States and Russia. What does it mean? Um, does it mean that Israel is going to have to stop attacking Gaza right now? No, it does not. And that is, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It does not mean, uh, and it does not include any warding on uh, ceasefire or cessation of hostilities, as usually these resolutions will, will use this phrase. And this is because the U.S. watered down the language. The U.S., of course, uh, delayed the voting uh, several times in the past days, including last night until very late, and then it was pushed to today. And um, the U.S. did not want this language which created this resolution which is still a positive development but uh, it creates a very weird position where the resolution calls for safe and unhindered humanitarian access 
but in the same time doesn't call for a ceasefire. So now we're rendered in a situation uh, where the Security Council is saying we will be allowing and appointing a coordinator from the UN to supervise the, the um, access of this humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip, but at the same time doesn't call on the parties to stop the, the fire. And uh, this is viewed with concern from many states, rightly so, because so far uh, this is uh, this uh, um, uh, assault on Gaza is the most devastating uh, on UN personnel. Over 130 UN personnel were killed, and now they're presumed to uh, uh, deliver humanitarian aid under the hill Israel unleashed on the Gaza uh, civilian population, and in the words of Biden himself, indiscriminate bombing. So how uh, how UN person are going to do their job, it's quite unclear. And it's it's even doubt, doubtful that uh, Israel will even comply with the resolution. And it won't be the first time. Israel has a history of uh, ignoring UN, uh, uh, numerous UN resolutions in relation to the situation in Palestine. So basically, you're saying that it's entirely possible that nothing will happen following this resolution. Correct. It's, it's possible, but um, it's also possible that we see more humanitarian aid coming in, but no stopping of, uh, of the bombing. So in a way, um, it's quite very strange formula. We say we, we will allow some food in or some humanitarian aid, but at the same time, we'll not stop uh, the hostilities. And I think, um, although it's, it's still a positive um, uh, development, and as your report saying, this is, of course, what we can, or as they, they describe it in the Security Council, this is what we can do, but it's not the war that we want to live in. Um, but it also reflects the moral failure of, of our war, and, and in particular of the, of the U.S., that uh, has been not only complicit in, in genocide, but has been also providing it diplomatic coverage. The only reason we don't have a clear call for a ceasefire is actually the U.S. veto. Uh, and, and it's quite interesting because it's also putting uh, the U.S. democracy to test. Uh, polls are showing that most Americans are calling for a ceasefire. They demand a ceasefire. Most Democrats in Congress are calling for a ceasefire. And the Biden administration seems to be in a different war. So I think the, the, we hope that the Biden administration listen to its people. After all, that's its job. And, and, and do the bare minimum of human decency to uh, call for a ceasefire. Our children are being torn apart uh, uh, on your TV screens by your own tax money. I'm sorry, but I have to say it. I'm, I'm here in the U.S. for the first time in my life. but And I've, I've been talking to people and I, I participated in demonstrations. And it's quite uh, striking, the disconnect between what people want in the street, because their their hearts are in the good place. They don't want to see war. And what the government is doing, not listening to, to its people. Since the beginning of this war, I lost almost 60 members of my family. Oh. 60. Uh, and I will never know, and most probably they, they were bombed by American uh, weapons. So the question that should be asked, why the U.S. Uh, continues providing Israel with weapons and diplomatic coverage to massacre Palestinians? It will remain a stain uh, on the U.S. and uh, I think on humanity as a whole that we are just witnessing, watching a televised carnage and not doing anything. Yeah, I am so sorry, Ahmed, to hear about you. Um family um it, it, i mean it is horrifying what is going on there and um me <laughs> as being an israeli american i i i just feel 
whatever it doesn't import it's not important what I feel but um, both of my governments are um, I, I, I'm appalled I'm appalled and, and so disturbed by um, what what both of them are doing um, Mazen Kumsia, thank you for uh, joining us again. You've been sending regular um, newsletters. What is the latest that you know is happening in Gaza? And we'll talk about the West Bank a little later, too. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. And uh, thanks, Ahmed, for his uh, comments. I want to uh, take it to a slightly different direction to talk about the starvation and uh, yes. genocide by starvation in Gaza. Basically, uh, yesterday, the Integrated Food Security Face uh, Classification, known as IPC, this is a global partnership, uh, issued a report which said basically the level of uh, hunger and starvation and lack of water in Gaza uh, is unprecedented in history of that global organizations classifying things. They gave, for example, that 2.2 million Palestinian uh, people in Gaza are classified as IPC phase three or above, which means crisis or worse. And in fact, about half a million are at the highest level, which is catastrophe, IPC phase five uh, classification. Oxfam uh, International, which deals a lot with hunger, uh, wrote, uh, commented about the IPC uh, classification, IPC study, and they said, uh, here's a quote from what they said, while over 90% of people in Gaza cannot find their next meal, some UN Security Council members are still toying with words like... uh, with words rather than uh, voting for a ceasefire, which is, as Ahmed said, there was no vote for a ceasefire. The U.S. would not allow it because they want this genocide to continue, and they want to continue to fund this genocide. This is U.S. slash Israeli genocide. This is not uh, just Israel that's doing this. Without the U.S., the U.S. could stop this in one day if they choose to even probably with one phone call from Netanyahu or or a statement that the U.S. could make, uh, Biden could tell his Secretary of Defense, stop sending the bombs that are used to kill Gazans, and could tell the Secretary of State, Blinken, a Zionist, uh, after all, he's his boss, he could tell him to stop vetoing resolutions that call for ceasefire that call for peace, that call for negotiations, etc. And uh, the World Food Program also issued statements about the uh, problem with the hunger and genocide by starvation. The World Health Organization said that there is now diseases spreading in Gaza. About 475,000 Gazans are suffering from diseases because of a lack of clean water clean sanitation, and so on. I could go on and on. The only international organization, uh, by the way, that has been kind of disappointing, all international organizations have stated the fact of this genocide. The only organization that didn't is the International Committee of the Red Cross, ironically. 
And the International Committee of the Red Cross has not taken a position about the torture and, uh, and uh, basically uh, Israel is harvesting Palestinians to put them in jails and torturing them. Already six uh, Palestinians have been killed in Israeli jails. The ICRC, International Committee of the Red Cross, has not demanded that they see those political prisoners. Now 11,500 political prisoners while the ICRC insists that they have to see the 120 Israeli um, captives uh, with the resistance movement and Hamas. So uh, the situation is uh, very catastrophic. Uh, in words sometimes uh, fail to describe what's happening. Uh, when there was, uh, you know, food starvation in Ukraine, in the 1930s, for example, at least they had water. They had uh, water to drink. They died of hunger after months, but not of thirst. Now in Gaza, I mean, there are people literally dying of lack of clean water, uh, and the sanitation situation is horrible. And so uh, because of Israel's bombing of infrastructures, and as a result, um, diseases are spreading. And not only that, Israel has, of course, destroyed the uh, hospitals of 36 hospitals. Only nine are still minimally operational, meaning they offer really only first aid kind of support because they don't have medicines or equipment or anesthesia or anything else because Israel has denied medicine, food, water, fuel to the hospitals and to the people of uh, Gaza. The situation is really horrific, and the U.S. is a full partner in crime in this, and I uh, feel ashamed since I also have U.S. citizenship, but I live here in uh, the West Bank, and maybe we can also talk about the horrors that are happening in the West Bank a little later. Yeah, we definitely will. And, um, you know, like you, Mazen, and I'm sure you too, Ahmed, um, I've been looking at what's going on, and um, it's truly a genocidal campaign when you think about it, uh, besides the tremendous amount of um, uh, bombing, Killing, injuring, maiming so many civilians and and like you said, no hospitals because most of them have been destroyed or uh, prevented from being used, destroying homes, schools, infrastructure, including water and sewer, uh, destroying agricultural fields, preventing aids from coming in. Um, in every way, and of course destroying also educational um, installations, it seems to be, well, it is, I think, um, making it impossible to live in Gaza if even after the bombs stop raining down. There will be a lot of Gazans alive um, and, and existing, but they won't be able to stay there and what's or or to live there what's incredible to me is how the whole world is watching 
And yet, even though, like both of you have said, there's definitely a majority of people who want this to end, it keeps going on. Um, Ahmed, how, how, do you, how do you explain that? How can that be? Uh, well, uh, simply because the world we live in at the moment is the result of the structure and justices of the past. We live in a world that is premised on the legacy of colonialism and slavery, on uh, a part of the world that appropriated the wealth and resources of, of uh, other parts of the world. Um, and then this whole system was created after World War II, where uh, certain powers control uh, more than, than other states in, in the world and can um, uh, stop such efforts to relief or to, to, to cease fire in such situations. Basically, it's the U.S. that is stopping uh, this situation. We're talking about one country uh, that, is, uh, that has been vetoing any call for um, a ceasefire. Uh, that is the reason. And to be honest, I, I, I would be hesitant to say that this is the first time or the situation in Palestine. Of course, it's unprecedented that it's on such a scale. But what happened in 1948 was also a genocide. The only reason we didn't call it a genocide then that we didn't have the genocide convention yet. We didn't have the concept of genocide had crystallized yet. The same as the racial segregation regime in the U.S. was apartheid. The only reason we didn't call it apartheid, that we didn't have the concept of apartheid uh, yet. And if you allow me, I think from a Palestinian perspective, and I think this is a problem has been here in the U.S. for long, and this is something I couldn't help but notice here uh, from my work in New York, but also going to Washington and talking to congressmen and women, they have no idea what's going on. What they hear about is only um, they hear about the Palestinians. They don't hear from them. And the Israelis have been very successful in uh, uh, allowing the Americans only to hear what Israel wants to paint uh, of the Palestinians. And they play it very well that they play on the, uh, the inherent racism in such settler colonial ideologies. So the stereotype of Arabs here in the U.S., it resonates well with some, uh, um, some racist uh, tropes like Arabs are irrational, uneducated, you can't reach an agreement with. Uh, and then they dispute lies like they never miss an opportunity to, to miss an opportunity. Even Israel's aggression in 1967 was sold here to the U.S. as, quote-unquote, David versus Goliath, although Israel was the aggressor. Israel, Israel didn't have any reason to attack. And even then, 1967, Israel attacked the U.S., attacked the U.S. as liberty. Uh, um, intelligence ship in the Eastern Mediterranean because they didn't want the American to have evidence, concrete evidence, although they knew that Israel was the aggressor. So uh, I would, I think, if, if I may, it's important to note that certain crimes are inherent in certain ideologies, mm -hmm. and Zionism as a form of racism, racial discrimination, as the UN described in 1975, is inherently racist, is inherently genocidal. It tried to commit genocide in 1948 and goes back to, to do it uh, now because it's premised on the idea that there need to be Jewish supremacy, so a majority need to be Jewish. So the very existence of the Palestinians is uh, threatening to the Zionist ideology. That's why when we say existence is resistance, we mean it. Because such settler colonial ideology is premised on the elimination of the indigenous population. Same happened here in the U.S. And if you allow me just to give one example, mm -hmm. like those those most, uh, if, if one could say liberal or left in, in Israel. Let's give the example of Ishaq Rabin. Ishaq Rabin was, was 
uh, awarded the Nobel uh, Prize. Ishaq Rabin is the one, is the architecture of the broken bone policy in, in, uh, in the first intifada. He said once, I hope to wake up and the sea has swallowed uh, Gaza. So you have the most liberal in Israel are actually genocidal. So what, what do you expect from a government that we have now that is the most uh, ultra-nationalist government in the history of Israel, where you have ministers that are self-described as fascist and homophobe? And, and, and call uh, or deny the very existence of the Palestinian people like Bezos, Mutrich, and, and Bengavir. This is the, the, the gang of, uh, of Netanyahu, as I would call it, a bunch of fanatics and, and war uh, criminals. And to be honest, they're not different than the founding fathers of, of Israel, which Albert Einstein described them in 1948 when he wrote an article for the New York Times. He also described them as fascists because this is the Zionist ideology. This is the core uh, idea. This is the problem. Once we address this matter, I think we can move forward. And this is a big question also for the Israelis themselves to to, to address. Uh, because, and I conclude with this point, because what Zionism has did is a form of mental manipulation, making Jews in Israel believe that in order for you to survive in, in this world, the only solution is to oppress the Palestinians. Uh, and I think and that is something for the Israelis to figure uh, out themselves. And once we get with this race, uh, get rid of this uh, racist ideology, perhaps we can move forward and and go back to a free Palestine where all of its citizens lived equally and coexisted for centuries, Muslims, Jews, and Christians. Yeah. To the point of uh, mental manipulation, I would like to share with both of you that um, I've been hearing from. Um, Old friends, people who are like really the intellectual elite of Israel, right? Intellectuals, artists, peaceniks, leftists, and they're all just screaming at me because of um, my opinion that this is the genocide is um, not okay. <laughs> and if I, I'm, I'm sorry. If I may, yeah. didn't 800 genocide and Holocaust scholars said this is a textbook of genocide? I trust them. I mean, they're Jewish scholars. They said this is genocide. Oh, absolutely. This is genocide. Um, but but me saying that is uh, getting a lot of people who I would have never uh, expected to... Um, to support what's going on, are supporting now. They all hate. Um, they hate Netanyahu. They hate his government. They hated the settlers, but they totally support what's going on. Which, um, you know, I'm like in in Gaza. There's no water, and in Tel Aviv, it seems like the water has some ingredient in it that makes people fascist or something. I do, I don't get it. Uh, Mazin, anything you'd like to say to this point? Uh, yes, thanks. Um, yeah, indeed, this is a, an interesting phenomenon about what's going on. Uh, the genocidal intent is actually declared by Israeli leaders, and there's, uh, I could send you hundreds of uh, documents and videos and audios of the Israeli leaders saying what they intend to do and that is create a Jewish state that is a pure Jewish state that... Uh, means without the Palestinians and that the Palestinians are subhuman animals and, and things like that. Um, but uh, the interesting thing, I think, about uh, this genocide, as mentioned by Ahmed, there's 
lots of genocides in human history. Uh, the genocide of Native Americans uh, uh, that created the U.S. There's Aborigines in Australia. There's the Rwandan genocide. There's actually, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing is also very common in human history. And the latest ethnic cleansing before this one in Gaza is of the Armenians from uh, Azerbaijan. 130,000 were were forcibly removed from their homes by, uh, ironically, also Azerbaijan is uh, supported by Israel. Um, and uh, so, an arm by Israel. So, uh, we see a lot of this in human history. Uh, but there is something peculiar about this particular uh, genocide, I must say. Uh, there's there's a couple of things that are interesting. One is uh, that it is live broadcast. Anybody could go on Al Jazeera, for example, and see live images of what's happening in Gaza and see it. And even people recording their own killing, uh, you know, that they are killed while recording on on uh, on their phones and stuff. So this is very unusual for history of genocides and holocausts in the world. And this could also be described as a holocaust. Um, but uh, the other interesting and unique feature about this is the level of lies <clears throat> that are perpetuated around the issue, from the lies about what happened on October 7th, uh, 40 beheaded babies the rapes and all the stuff that uh, didn't happen and, and proven that it didn't happen and uh, many other lies, but the lies before that and the lies after that that allow this to continue for 75 years. Uh, so this is very unusual that you have so much lies centered around this and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and the lies are ironically accompanied by Race-based, you know, calls for genocide and doing genocide, and denying food and water and medicine to to millions of people. Uh, certainly, they cannot lie about that. They ordered this denial. Uh, so, so I think it's uh, interesting. And the third interesting element about this, I mean, interesting maybe is not the best word to choose, but uh, unique feature of this is the level of Western support for this uh, genocide, uh, Western governments I'm talking about, not Western people. Uh, so the U.S. government, the British government, the French government, and so on, are clearly on the side, not only on the side uh, of uh, cheering genocide, but actually facilitating it. Uh, you know, when you have uh, the only two countries really that are standing with the Palestinians now are Yemen and Lebanon. Uh, Yemen by saying we cannot allow Israeli ships uh, or ships heading to Israel to continue to support Israel while there's genocide. So we will stop these ships until the genocide stops. And this is actually in compliance with international law. So what does the U.S. do it, uh, to protect Israel? It's forming a coalition of countries to defend Israel from uh, uh, and Israeli ships uh, from uh, being attacked by the Ye- by Yemeni naval forces. 
these three unique features of this genocide uh, makes it very, very dangerous, by the way, and very um, peculiar in the history of genocides. And uh, the, the numbers show this, uh, the, the voting, the way that the U.S. Uh, dominates the world and the fact that the U.S. is willing to go to a global world war um, to defend uh, genocide is really un- unprecedented. Yeah, um, to your point quickly of um, the lies, um, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz um, had a piece um, after investigating what happened on October 7 and, um, you know, was very clear that one baby was killed, 20 children all together, which, of course, is um, is very... tragic but by now at least 400 babies and children in Gaza were killed for every Israeli thousand yeah thousand children right and, so and not only that but the civilians killed on October 7 uh, in that in that attack by the resistance forces, Uh, most of them and now Israeli newspapers and Israeli commentators uh, documented this most of them were killed by the Israelis themselves Israeli helicopter gunships and tanks and there's now video that demonstrate this they were shelling the houses at uh, Kibbutz Beeri for example that's why there were so many cars burned and houses burned this, these are not From Hamas uh, resistance, they were bombing their own Israeli uh, military, bombing Israeli civilians and killing them uh, because Hamas fighters were with them. So they wanted to just kill everybody. And uh, this is now documented. Uh, and this is just one of, of many dozens of lies about, you know, for example, about the hospitals that justify their destruction of hospitals and stuff like that. I mean, it's almost comical sometimes, the videos that the Israeli government shows about these things. I mean, in one case, they showed supposedly a cache of, uh, of uh, four or five guns um, that they discovered in one hospital, but the guns were placed by the Israelis next to the magnetic resonance imaging machine. And, and of course, you know, in the, Anybody who knows anything about uh, about this equipment MRIs you cannot have any metal in the room you even have to take your ring out because they have such large, you know strong magnets so this, this is uh, nonsense and, and the lies after lies after lies uh, unfortunately you know some people in the West buy them or or want to just ignore that the, they are lies because you Uh, and Ahmed touched on a very important point. Part of it maybe has to do with the fact that these Western governments are themselves colonizers, oppressors who have uh, committed genocides. I mean, the U.S. alone, uh, Martin Luther King was right to describe it as the biggest purveyor of violence in the world. Uh, they committed genocides in Vietnam and Cambodia 
in Iraq and Yemen and other places where they, uh, you know, they they uh, engaged in these kinds of behaviors, carpet bombings in Vietnam using napalm and using Agent Orange to starve the people of Vietnam. Millions of people were killed as a result of this. And so there is uh, that element of, uh, you know, there is certainly, uh, when they say Israel shares our values, maybe that's true at some level, that there is a value of genocide and a value of colonialism that we share with them, with the Israelis, so to speak. Yeah. Well, my guests today are Mazin Kumsiya, who you just heard is a professor, founder and director of the Palestine Museum of Natural History and Palestine Institute of Biodiversity and Sustainability at Bethlehem University. Also with us is Ahmed Abu Ful, the Hague representative for the Ramallah-based legal rights group Al-Haq. He is from Gaza and began his international legal career by doing an internship at the International Criminal Courts Office of the Public Council for Victims. So, um, Ahmed, um, there is such a thing as international law. Um, I think it's, um, it's not being followed right now at all. Um, so, couple questions. What what should, what can, what must be done uh, under international law? And also, um, a Huffington Post report said that the Biden administration is finalizing plans to urge Switzerland to reject the request from Palestine and its supporters to hold con- a conference on violations of the Ge- Geneva Convention. So... Um, and of course, you know, if you if you listen to Netanyahu, he crows almost daily about um, crimes by Palestinians against Israel and, and such. Um, they are trying to use the ICC um, to support this genocide. Talk about all of these things, please. Yeah, well, uh, to, to start with, um, it's important to understand that this whole body of international law, especially international criminal law, emerged after World War II. Um, and the origins uh, of, of international criminal law is uh, argued to be the Nuremberg trial, which was the trial against the Nazi war criminals, and the Tokyo trials against the uh, Japanese war criminals. Uh, of course, these uh, trials, especially the Nuremberg trial, was a great contribution to the evolution of international criminal law. But it was also the trial of the victorious. So it only tried the Nazi criminals. It didn't try any crimes of the Allies, although they were crimes. And you see the remnants of that now when the Israelis are quoting Dresden, for example, the telling their Western allies where you did it in Dresden. Well, that is correct. But it was a crime then. The, fa- the fact that we didn't have a trial for anyone who committed that crime, it didn't make it right, right? And then you have, it seems, in the mentality of the West that this body of law is their property to apply by them against their uh, um, enemies, but not to apply on them. And that's why you see, for example, the West mobilized the whole body of international law in the case of Ukraine, because the perpetrators were Russians, right? 
But in, 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 the, in relation to Israel, you don't see this mobilization. Look at, at the U.S. statements, for example. The whole, like, the, the, there is no even mentioning of accountability or justice or recourse to, to law or international crimes. While in Ukraine, they were passionately advocating for international justice and accountability. Such hypocrisy, you know, double standards and selectivity um, does not only... Uh, uh, I think dehumanize the Palestinians, but it also harms the whole body of international law that, to a certain extent, provided some stability in the world after war after World War II. And I think there is no one uh, to blame for that but the West, including the U.S., because for for decades, especially the the, the period after, uh, let's say, the Cold War until nowadays. Um, the West has the absolute authority to implement this body of law on everyone, principally and consistently. But they did not do that. They only applied it when, when it is uh, politically convenient. And I think now we're at critical juncture that the situation in Gaza is not only showing us everything wrong with the politics of the war and the system of, of the whole UN that emerged after World War II, but also uh, uh, the, the hypocrisy of Western states that claim to be democratic, claim to be all about international law, but now they, they don't care. They're, they're not really doing the same uh, in Palestine. And this sends a very negative message to our part of the world. Uh, and I say this with all honesty, uh, the U.S. cannot be taken seriously in our part of the world when it mentions um, uh, human rights because evidently they don't mean it. I mean, only yesterday, I think Biden tweeted something saying that the U.S. supports the Palestinian right to self-determination and what Hamas did doesn't affect that. But two days before, the U.S. voted against a resolution on the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination. So exactly what he said he supported two days before he voted against. So in a way, like uh, Palestinians or our part of the world, the global south in general, they're fed up with all of these lies about uh, uh, human rights and international law, what does it mean? And in all honesty, um, an international order that doesn't see the Palestinians or any other nation for that matter is not worth seeing. We're not children of illicit God. We're, we're, we're not begging for our rights. We're entitled to them, whether the U.S. liked it or not. The U.S. can have veto uh, uh, and the Security Council, but it cannot have veto on our humanity. We have something in this world, and we will fight for it. That's why we know our freedom is inevitable, but what we try to do is to, to minimize uh, uh, the suffering. Um, you mentioned also the uh, the pressure that the U.S. is putting on Switzerland. That's quite shameful. It's, it's really a disgrace that the, the U.S. is trying to prevent um, um, a conference by Switzerland, which is the um, uh, uh, the state entrusted on the whole uh, body of international humanitarian law, especially the, the Geneva Conventions, uh, and trying to prevent this because, of course, it will be problematic for the U.S. and Israel. And it's important for your listeners to know that this conference was called for by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the International Commission of Jurists, uh, including numerous Palestinian and Israeli organizations. So all, all human rights organizations in the world are saying it's important that we hold this conference and the U.S. is trying to put a pressure, actually it's trying to bully another government into not doing what it has to do. Because as the, uh, uh, the, the, the government entrusted in the Geneva Conventions, Switzerland has an obligation to hold the conference. If it did not hold this conference, it will be in violation of its presumed neutrality. 
and and Switzerland have to hold it regardless of who's uh, uh, um, who's the perpetrator or who's the the the, the parties to the armed conflict. Uh, also, such conference was held previously in 1999, in 2001, 2014, and all of these conferences were actually focused on the uh, situation in Israel uh, and Palestine, in particular after Israeli ag aggressions and violations of IHL and disregard of, of human life. So it seems that the Biden administration is very embarrassed internationally because it keeps using the veto. Um, today it didn't use the veto, but it ma managed to water down the, the, the resolution. So it doesn't want to see early next year, 2024, a new conference, which will be another diplomatic embarrassment. And I think it's important to note here that it, it, it's becoming clear that the coast of uh, 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 the American-Israeli re relationship is very damaging uh, uh, to the U.S. Uh, and the U.S. Is, is, is what the U.S. is jeopardizing is actually its reputation in the whole war. And I, I say this cautiously, but it's it's a very noticeable trend in our part of the world that uh, the lack of U.S. popularity and the fact that the U.S. cannot be taken seriously anymore and the questioning of the credibility of the U.S. is actually benefiting other geopolitical actors, where our part of the world becomes more sympathetic to other political actors. And I think the U.S. is at, at, a, at an important juncture where they have to uh, uh, decide uh, what is the right thing uh, to do if the U.S. wants to claim that it's leadership in this world? As I said, leadership is about consistent and principled application of international law. Then it has to stop with the hypocrisy and the complicity in Israeli crimes, including the genocide unfolding before our eyes uh, in the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. Um, Mazen, I can't believe how quickly the time um, flies. Uh, tell us what's happening in the West Bank. Well, uh, since October 7, uh, Israel intensified its attack on Palestinian communities in the West Bank. Of course, part of the reason for what happened October 7 was what's happening in the West Bank. The attacks on Al-Aqsa Mosque were happening before October 7, and the attack you know, on the Palestinians uh, in their communities the jailing of Palestinians without trial, etc. Uh, this has been happening a lot in the West Bank before October 7. After October 7, uh, Israel doubled down, basically, and increased those attacks. For example, today is Friday, and only 12,000 people managed to get into Al-Aqsa uh, Mosque compound to pray. Israel has prevented anybody below the age of 50 from getting there. And those are mostly people from Jerusalem uh, above age 50 and uh, from 1948 areas who could get there. Uh, most of the West Bank is in lockdown. Our towns and villages, our ghettos, uh, essentially concentration camps, are in lockdown. We cannot even go from here in Bethlehem uh, to Jericho, of course, even before... Uh, you know, to to uh, to uh, we couldn't go to Jerusalem before or after, of course, but the lockdown has intensified, and uh, so between the ghettos, there's no free movement. And when you are able to get out of the cities, uh, you are attacked by the settlers, protected and supported by the soldiers, 
And the soldiers come into the Palestinian towns almost daily. Here in Bethlehem, where I'm speaking from, there are three refugee camps, and they bear the brunt of these attacks and arrests, and uh, and the same with the refugee camps in Jenin and Nablus and Tulkarim, where people are, uh, you know, Israeli military goes in and uh, demolishes homes, kidnaps people, tortures them, uh, etc. So the situation in the West Bank is... Uh, very, very uh, frustrating, difficult, um, not as bad as Gaza, of course, with the large-scale demolition in Gaza of 60-some percent of buildings, but uh, but certainly it's getting there, and people here are worried that if Israel succeeds in Gaza, and we don't think they will succeed, we hope not, if they succeed in Gaza, they will... Uh, do the same thing in the West Bank and drive Palestinians into uh, Jordan. We are already receiving such threats and even death threats and, and calling for us to go to Jordan, and just like the Gaza people are supposed to go to Egypt. Um, and so uh, the same what's planned in Gaza is planned in the West Bank, and there's the beginnings of it already happening. Mm-hmm. Um, Ahmed, I want to ask you about uh, three previous uh, guests that we had on this show. Uh, one is Rifat al-Arir, who I believe you knew. Uh, he was killed by um, an Israeli bomb. Another one is Ahmed Abu Artema, which you might know also from Gaza. He was a guest several times on this show. I met him personally, too. And uh, I know that he was seriously injured, um, as well as one of his sons, and uh, several other members of his family were killed. I, I wonder if you know what's going on with him. And third, which is a different um, on a different track, we had Charlotte Dennett here some weeks ago, who wrote a book about the history of um, well, the West, including Israel. Um, trying to get the gas and oil that um, is under Gaza and in the in the uh, water, the the Mediterranean around it, and and how much do you think that is a factor nowadays? Um, yeah, th- thank you for the question. I um, the 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 devastating news um, of the killing of of Rafat was um, hard on, on all of us. Um, I, I know him through his writing and, and, and his work. I didn't know him personally, but I know a lot of people who received their education um, by him. He was professor of English literature at Islamic University in Gaza, um, and it was devastating news to, to, to hear. And I think his, his poem, If I Must Die, is, is becoming uh, a landmark, I think, and it's becoming the, the, uh, the anthem of, of, of this time. Uh, Ahmed Abu Tame I also um, know from, from my work, and um, he is actually uh, mentioned in our complaint, uh, our case against um, uh, President uh, Biden. Um, I didn't mention this earlier, but we have a case with um, uh, Azal Haq, uh, human rights organization with uh, Defense for Children International, the Palestine branch, and our partners in the U.S., the Center for Constitutional Rights. 
And this is a case against President Biden, Secretary Blinken, and uh, Secretary of State Blinken, and Secretary of Defense uh, Austin for the complicity in uh, the genocide in Gaza and the failure uh, uh, of their duty to prevent the, the genocide. Uh, and he's also mentioned in in um, in our uh, uh, he's he's part of, of 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 the case because he's also bringing uh the uh the case um for for those who don't know he he was the founder of the great march of, of return where uh palestinians marched peacefully to the borders uh demanding their right to return to their homes and villages from which they were ethnically cleansed in 1948 and the israelis uh, basically shot them um, uh, many lost their limbs the commission of inquiry said that these were war crimes israeli soldiers were basically shooting palestinians from distance for sports there, there is even video evidence of them basically uh, bitting and who kills whom or who sh sh uh, shoots whom. They kill journalists, uh, paramedics, and many other civilians. Um, on the question of e economic incentives, if I can put it this way, with their oil and gas, this is this is you know a topic that is inherent in settler colonial projects. It's always about profit. It's always about resources, uh, and you see this from. Um, from the Israeli behavior, also the, the, the uh, insistence to continue the occupation because basically they dominate not only every aspect of the Palestinian life, but their wealth and natural resources, including the gas uh, um, uh, before the Gaza uh, coast, which is their, their two um, 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 fields of gas, the, the known uh, as G uh, Gaza Marine 1 and Gaza Marine 2, which Israel has already been emptying part of it because it's between Gaza and uh, and the Israeli side. There's also um, some um, plans to start the so-called Bengarion, uh, um, Bengarion uh, Canal. Um, and the, the rumors or the leaked documents, let me say, show that this canal is supposed to uh, be opened from the Red Sea and passes by part of the northern Gaza Strip. And, and some are making the case that this is also one of the uh, uh, one of the reasons why Israel is insisting on destroying Gaza and reoccupying part of it because they want to open this uh, uh, this canal and and and, and the the uh, let's say trade uh, channels that will be open. So th there is a lot of uh, um, a lot of incentives for for Israel to continue not only its occupation but its its destruction. Uh, of Gaza, as I said, these are leaked documents. That, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this was the reason. We've seen this uh, before: Israeli actions in the Gaza Strip, for example, destroying architect uh, agriculture land, was intended to ensure dependency on the Israeli um, uh, economy. The insistence that Israel controls uh, crossings with the Gaza Strip was also a part of uh, the Israeli plan to control every aspect of the Palestinian people's life. The um, uh, some agreements like the so-called Paris Agreement, which came after the Oslo Agreement, was designed to ensure that the Palestinian economy will always be dependent on the Israeli economy. So um, these are, I think, legitimate points to be made. Uh, time will, will show. At Lahak, we did some research on this. We did some publications in, on this, especially on the um, uh, uh, gas on the eastern Mediterranean, which Israel is preventing the Palestinians from uh, from using their natural resources. And I think uh, you're absolutely right. This is one of the reasons why 
uh, Israel wants to um, uh, to control Gaza. But I think most importantly, uh, and we should not, I think, forget that fact. For Israel, uh, Gaza has always been described as demographic burden. So the the sole goal or the main goal for Israel is to get rid of the population to push the Palestinians out of the Palest of the Palestine geography, because Israel's ideology is premised on this idea of uh, of uh, Jewish majority, and therefore uh, they they want to, uh, in a way, achieve two things: first, liquidate the Palestinian coast by pushing the Palestinians out of the Palestinian geography. The rest they can absorb as they absorb. 21% of Israel's population now are Palestinians who live as second-class citizens. But in order to ensure that there will never be not only majority near uh, uh, um, near enough uh, representation to challenge Israel's racial discrimination regime, Israel wants to get rid of the Palestinians. We're hearing voices now from Israeli government that are not talking about Gaza only. They're talking about forcible displacement for uh, the West Bank. Some of them are calling for um, a forcible displacement of um, Palestinian citizens of Israel, especially in the north, to push them to, to Lebanon. So you see the war or, or this hostility is not only about the Gaza Strip. I think it's, it's, it's about the Palestinian people as a whole. What's at stake is the very existence of, of the Palestinian people as a whole. And Gaza should not be yeah. viewed in isolation of the bigger uh, uh, context of Palestine as a whole. Yeah, and we are out of time. I, I just want to quickly note that the uh, slogan from the river to the sea has been the slogan of the Israeli settlers all along, and they are the government currently, and that's something that I think uh, Americans should know. Thank you so very much, Ahmed Abufoul and Mazen Kumsiye. I hope we can get to talk with you guys again. There's so much more to talk about. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And, Thank you for having us. And, it. and thanks to Summer and Jade and Rick. I'm SD Dinur. Bye bye.